Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to remain at the forefront of our minds. Violence and hate permeate the news far too often. This week's episode, however, is a beacon of hope for how we can make change in our communities. Development holds power and is just as relevant to DEI as any other arm of our schools and institutions. This week, David Smith, Director of Development at St. Anne's School in Brooklyn, talks to us about his work in the context of a career at independent schools. David examines St. Anne's history and how it informs their work today. David has had the opportunity to execute some bold changes with his program. He tells us about canceling St. Anne's Gala, removing the donor role, and reframing the idea of scholarship. David is contrarian in many ways, but he backs up his strategies with results. This episode is very thought-provoking, and it's long, so buckle up. David Smith serves as the Director of Development at St. Anne's School in Brooklyn. He began his career as a history and government teacher in the New York City public schools, and then taught for four years at Friends Seminary in Manhattan. He left full-time teaching in 2008 to begin a career in development, working first with CCS Fundraising, where his clients included Women for Women International and the NAACP. He returned to independent schools in 2010 as the Director of Development for the Calhoun School. In 2013, he became the Director of Development for the Allen Stevenson School, where he led their successful $40 million campaign and a robust annual fund. He serves on the Board of Trustees of the Cadman School. Smith received a bachelor's degree in government from Georgetown University and a master's degree in history from Rutgers University. Finally, a special thank you to listener Brad Grimmer, who made the introduction between me and David. Brad, you made this very important episode possible. Thank you. Now let's get started. David, welcome to The Debrief. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're joining us from Brooklyn, New York. Um, yes, which is the, in many ways, the cultural capital of New York City now. Ooh, can you say that? I don't know. Am I allowed to say that now? <laughs> no, there's a lot of excitement in Brooklyn, and I know you have been, you know, you've worked in Manhattan in independent schools, and you're now in Brooklyn. What has that transition been like? The independent school world in Manhattan is very steeped in tradition, and uh, some of that tradition is fantastic and great and powerful. The in Brooklyn, there's a little bit more freedom, I guess, to to do different things, to not follow the old conventions, to do school and do development, particularly uh, in a different way. And and that's been interesting for me. And that takes nothing against uh, it's nothing against the the schools in Manhattan, but uh, I have found my experience in Brooklyn to be a little more freeing in that regard. More creative? Yeah, more creative for sure. There's a lot more uh, opportunity, I guess, to rewrite the, the book and the, or the playbook and to do things in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been something I think has been most exciting for me. Well, we're definitely going to talk more about that. How do you think about the purpose of independent schools and the need that they're serving outside of a public education? Sure. I mean, there's one, there's one really basic one that's so that 
a lot of us don't think about, but if you, if you took all of the students, young people, children in New York City, independent religious parochial schools, and then just threw them all into the public school system, there's, there's no way it could function, right? It would, it would collapse immediately. Uh, so we do serve a really important purpose for the city of New York without a question. And for most major cities, right? That's a, that's a, a really critical thing. The thing that we're doing now, which is trying to find the most creative and interesting ways to educate children is different from what independent schools have done in the past. And I, I think that's kind of where a lot of the challenge comes with our identity. What were we, what are we now, and what do we want to become? Uh, and for many, many years, and in some cases, um, centuries, independent schools were really designed to replicate power, privilege, wealth for a small number of students. And that's, that's complicated, right? That's a problem. We have to acknowledge that, address it in some way, reflect on it a little bit, think about how that's different from today, how it's not different from today, and what we want to do about it. So those are, those are the, I think, the fun and challenging questions being in independent schools now, uh, and, and certainly being in advancement now, right? Because that's really what we're trying to, those are the, the, the critical questions for fundraisers in the independent school world. What is your purpose? Why are you raising money? Uh, it, it can't just be to build a new science lab because the kids at your school already have a great science lab <laughs> on a relative basis for sure. Mm-hmm. So what is the point? What's the purpose of it? And, and I, I love the opportunity to grapple with that. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into those questions. Maybe we can start with St. Anne's history because it, it's a special story and it definitely informs what you're doing now. Yeah. I mean, you know, at, at this point, I, I have worked um, in four different independent schools and they, they sort of span the, the gamut of New York City independent schools, sort of a traditional all boys school, a, a progressive Manhattan school, a Quaker school. And now I work at, at St. Anne's in the sort of cultural landscape, right? St. Anne's is sort of known as the quirky, artistic, eclectic school that doesn't give grades and uh, allows kids to sort of build their own schedules and take whatever classes they want and um, really a, a, a very intense focus on, on art and music. But at its core, though, I mean, St. Anne's was a school that was started in the middle of the strife in New York City around school integration. And this is not in, in Brooklyn Heights, right? the historically sort of the, the whitest school in, I mean, the whitest neighborhood um, in Brooklyn. So it, it, it's not a religious school. It doesn't have a, a sectarian part of its mission today, but it was started in the basement of a Episcopal church in Brooklyn Heights. And so that culture, that contrast, right, is a, that's a real thing that we have to respond to and answer. Have we become more diverse over the years as an independent school? Yes. I mean, you know, we're, we're arguably one of the more diverse schools in New York City, probably at this point, given the segregation and resegregation of, of a lot of New York City public schools. And I would say that both in terms of racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity, right, we, we really make a strong effort. We strive for it. We have one of the highest uh, discount rates of any independent school in New York City. So we're making, we're making the charge, we're making the case. But, but at our core, we're rooted in this really deep school problem and conundrum in our country. And that's who we are. And 
frankly, that's who a lot of independent schools are. An enormous number of independent schools across this country that were started sometime after 1954 in response to the Brown v. Board decision or in response to, to community boards and, and city governments attempting to integrate schools. We've got to own that. And then we have to move forward. Many people um, have paid attention and, and looked at uh, Nice White Parents, uh, which from the New York Times, and heard the, the story of New York City school integration and heard the story of St. Anne sort of plopped right in the middle of that. And I think a lot of folks at the school were embarrassed um, that we were, were exposed in, in that way. And in many ways, I, I think that's important to be in that conversation and to, to say we're still, as a city, as a state, as a country, we're still dealing with this problem of school segregation and inequitable educational opportunities. So let's be part of the solution and acknowledge that we were at some point part of the problem. Was that history a consideration that you made when you chose to take the position? It was a part of my uh, equation, but I've worked in independent schools now since 2003. So I, I'm not, I have no illusions <laughs> about, the, about independent schools and being a person of color in independent schools and how that, how that can be complicated. This conversation has the attention of maybe more people than ever before. What does that mean for you and your work? Uh, I think it's exciting. There's a feeling that, and I've sort of described it this way, of being at a party. And I, I thought it was yeah. great, but no one else was there. <laughs> and now a lot of people are at this party. And, and we're all having real and productive conversations. And I would say advancement and development were the last places in the independent school world that were engaged in these conversations. But let's go back for a minute to your question about purpose. How do you answer that for yourself? And how do you answer that question for St. Anne's? I see my purpose as in part bringing the opportunity of St. Anne's to more and more children. And how do we do that? Well, there are brilliant kids in every zip code in, in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. And many of them come from lots of different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. So that's my North Star. As I go out to raise money, it's making sure that this school can be accessible to as many of those brilliant kids as possible. Knowing the North Star as a fundraiser is really, really important. And not everyone has taken the time to really identify what that is or think about the mission, though I do think in the last year, more people have taken that time to reflect. And I, I completely understand that the importance of aligning those things, but what does that actually mean in our day-to-day -day development work? Sure. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because uh, on one hand, it means that we have to make a very clear case. Right? The, the case for support is beyond just we're a lovely school, help us to continue, uh, or we have this great project. Now, do we have building projects and other things? Of course we do. But the, the main focus of our, of our messaging and our appeals and our individual conversations with donors is about the vision for the school. And at its core is a, not just a vision of a school with an incredible mission with art and music at the center, but it's also a vision of a school that is broadly diverse and reflective of New York City. And donors listen, they hear it. 
we have to make the compelling case. It, it's not as, I know it's different. You know, I've done fundraising for building campaigns and uh, I've done fundraising that uh, really is focused on sort of teacher salaries or closing the gap. Um, I've done all that kind of fundraising before and this fundraising is different. Uh, I don't know if one's easier or harder, but this one's definitely more mission driven around and values-based, it sounds Values-based, like. right. A mission around DEI specifically. So when you say that donors listen, are you talking about white donors? A diverse set of donors uh, in our alumni pool, in our current parent pool. You know, we reach out uh, across all constituencies with the same message. And, uh, and I think it resonates with a lot of people. I find that there isn't a um, backlash to it. Let me put it that way. Uh, I don't feel like there are any folks who are saying, you know, why aren't you fixing that? Uh, you know, occasionally it happens, right? But, you know, why don't you raise money to, to make the library nicer? Or, um, you know, the, the gym is too small. Uh, you know, that we hear that, but that's rare. That's rare. So does that mean your primary fundraising bucket is scholarship? So we try to not use that language specifically. Uh, we, we do sometimes, but it's mostly uh, about unrestricted annual giving, right? If, if we really? say this is, uh, this is the work that we do, here's what we're committed to as a school, join us in this. I have felt like we don't have to earmark that in any sort of way because it's not just diversity in terms of scholarship. It is also equity inclusion work. Uh, which is expensive in some, in many cases. It, so there's a, there, there are a lot of aspects to the case. And so I try not to keep it as narrow as just scholarship. I also want to, I also want to try to reframe the language around scholarship. I think historically oh. independent schools and, and maybe even at a lot of universities, the, the narrative around scholarship has been the exceptional black or brown student from a poor family who just needs a, a, a handout, a hand, a, a, you know, an opportunity, a way out. Um, and, and that's not really what it is, you know, to, to me. Uh, I make the case that this is about the school meeting families where they are financially in order to create a diverse community of people who are all invested in this and somehow they are all owners in this community. Uh, they all have value. No one's, no one is, uh, no one is the charity case, and no one is the, the, benefactor in that in that sense. Uh, I think the narrative in independent school, scholarship fundraising over the years, uh, has been, uh, let's save some of these, poor black and brown kids from their, you know, wretched schools that they would otherwise have to go to, and and I I reject that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you reframing that because, you know, in my world, we're so used to talking about scholarships and fellowships all the time. And I think it's, you're right that it is so much more than that. So are you, you're raising current use funds that go towards tuition. Is that right? That's right. So our financial aid tuition assistance budget is, is pretty significant, right? We have a remission program for faculty, for faculty children. We have need-based financial aid. And uh, in total, that's over $14 million of a 
44 roughly million dollar budget. So that's a, it's a big number. And we raised between three and a half and four and a half million. Uh, we may not this year under the circumstances, but that's our, our sort of typical annual fund target. And within that, you know, we make the case that this helps us to craft the type of student body that we want to craft. It is a, it's a broad look at financial aid. When I talk to, to donors, I often talk about the, what I describe as the $2,000 a month family in New York City. And the family that can afford to dedicate $2,000 a month to their child's education. Well, that doesn't get you into most private schools in New York, but can we meet you there? Roughly about half tuition, and then you're on the payment plan and you pay the rest. It works, right? It works because then you you open the doors to a whole lot of folks who never thought that independent school was a possibility for their family. You find a wide variety of people in that demographic, right? In that socioeconomic range, uh, people of lots of different racial backgrounds. So we use that as, and it's this is about admissions and, and development and the finance office are working together to make sure that, that we're implementing this in the right way. And then when, when the families get here and the kids are in school, we wanna make sure that we're doing the best job that we can for all of our students um, and, and trying to provide the most equitable environment and the most inclusive environment as that we possibly can. So do you think the students have an awareness of who has aid and who doesn't? That's the, that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, I, I use this with, I say to donors all the time, the vision here is that you walk into a classroom at St. Anne's and you see a whole bunch of kids of different racial and ethnic backgrounds and you have no idea what the socioeconomic or financial backgrounds of those families are. None. That's a beautiful thing. That's a great vision. We're fighting for it. It's really, really hard to do, but we, but we're, we're in New York city. You know, we're in, we're located in Brooklyn Heights. We can do this. It requires emissions doing their part. And certainly in some ways it's a recruiting, you know, um, work as well. Uh, finance has to, the business office has to do their part and we have to do our part, but it's a, it's an exciting vision. The head of school is on board with that vision. Trustees are on board with it. So, uh, so we work hard to get there and, and we're not, we're not there yet. Um, but I, I love that that's our, that that's our focus. Are you need blind? We are not need blind. And it's, I, I don't think many or any independent schools in the United States are. It's a really hard thing to do. I think there are some specific schools that have a, a different mission, right? Where they are, they raise money for a particular population of, of students and there's a very low or no tuition associated with that. But I, I think the traditional independent school model doesn't really allow for, for need blind admissions. Not yet. I mean, you know, I think as we all work to build endowments, um, you know, we're not at the level, the university levels yet. And most, even, even your, even your older independent schools haven't built the type of endowments over the generations that they would need to do that. What's your endowment today? Our endowment is about 30 million right now. It is. That's big. 
been growing. It's been growing. Uh, we've been working to, to build it, actually, and we're building it around this same narrative. Uh, the, the case for endowed funds is to make sure that we have the flexibility and to, to admit kids who, whose families may not be able to afford the full tuition bill. That's the case. When we go out and we talk to families about giving to our endowment, that's, that's what we talk about too. So it's all interconnected. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping to get to 40 million in endowment uh, over the next couple of years. That's our goal. Uh, and if we can, if we can do that in, in this climate, that would be great. We're, we will still not be on the high end for independent schools uh, and certainly not for schools our size, but that's okay. We're catching up, I think. We're doing a good job trying to, and we're doing it in a way that I think makes sense. You know, it's connected to, to our values and our mission. Well, we've talked about students and of course that's what it's all about, but let's shift to talking more about alums and donors. Um, I was sharing that I was having this conversation with a couple of listeners and I had a question sent in that I'd like to open with. It's a little bit controversial, but I think it's an important question. This isn't about race and the exclusion of certain groups of people. This is about a job that needs to be done to support the ongoing success of an organization and how we can best utilize our context to supply that foundation. Sure. So that question was asked in the context of building a diverse pipeline and meeting with alums of color and that sort of work. I think this question really shows that a lot of people still don't understand why that's important. So can we start there? Yeah, sure. I, and I would make the case that supporting the organization in today's world means providing a just, equitable, inclusive environment with regard to race. I don't think you can have a really good school right now that doesn't do that. If you think about the world that the, the, the kids who are enrolling in our school right now are going to inherit, they're going to need certain competencies. They're going to need to be able to work with people in a different way. They're going to need to think about systems and structures that are not equitable in, in a lot of ways, right? They're going to need to build a better society. That's part of their, their job. And our institutions can be a part of the solution. And the best education possible has to include some acknowledgement of the need for diverse perspectives, ideas, and backgrounds. So you're saying it is about race? I'm saying it's about race and socioeconomic diversity and religious diversity and different cultural backgrounds. And, and this is where I think there's, there's a difference, right? We currently are living in a multiracial republic. And if we, can, if we believe that we can harness all of the, the talent and energy within that multiracial republic to make our society better, then schools have to do their part. Right, we will be much better off. We'll be a wealthier nation. We'll be a more secure nation. We'll be a more innovative nation. We'll do all of those things if we embrace this notion of a multiracial republic and then utilize our schools as a means to harness all of that skill and power. If we don't do that, then we will be less successful. There, and and we, we, see, we see that. 
we, we see the impacts of that already. We know that we've lost trillions in economic activity due to rate, things like racism. We know, and we see this in other countries and, and in our own country uh, with regard to, to gender equality. Advanced economies that have harnessed and engaged and brought women into the workforce successfully have been better off than countries that haven't. We know this, we see it. And so to not to say that we can't do the same thing with regard to race because we just haven't done it that way before doesn't really make sense. I mean, we all lose with that mentality, the idea that we're just gonna do the same thing we've always done. Speaking of doing the same thing, you've, done, you've made a huge change you came in in 2017 and you canceled the gala. I did, yes. And it's uh, those things are really tricky in independent schools, right? I mean, there's there's such big cultural events and uh, the parents get dressed up and it's a big show. In many cases, uh, you know, DJs and a big auction and we don't need it. And we, we just have to look at ourselves and acknowledge that we don't need it. Once we say that, then it's fine. If you say you want it, and that's that if it's a want and you and then you choose to keep it, then that's fine. But the challenge that I've experienced in independent schools is this argument that we need it, that we can't make the budget without it, or that we can't provide the sort of financial aid that we want to without the gala, that we can't do all of these other things we have to have. And that's not that's just not true. What I would prefer is some honesty in it, right? That you like dressing up, you find the option to be fun. You would prefer to buy an auction item than make an outright gift that's unrestricted to the school. That's often true. You may have a vacation home that you can donate to the auction and get a tax deduction for that donation, and you don't have to make an outright gift. That may be true too. So those are, but those are wants. That's not a need. We canceled the gala. I had a few conversations with trustees and, and I sort of got to St. Anne's and heard uh, about some of the, the goals around diversity and equity, uh, talked to the head of school about it. And, and I said, well, this, this event doesn't seem to be aligned with those goals, so let's not do it. So of course, the first thing that came up was, well, it raised this much money last year and it raised this much money the year before. And I said, okay, well, I will review, I'll take a look, right, at, at all of the auction donations, at all of the, the ticket buyers, all of the people who sponsored at the different levels, whatever it is, right? And then we'll have, it, we'll have a conversation with those folks. Did everybody transfer their giving from the gala to the annual fund? No, but we raised way more money without it than with it. We raised way more money. So what you're essentially doing in the independent school world is you're saying we need this event when you really don't need it, you want it. And what you're actually doing is you're making the choice to sacrifice fundraising dollars in exchange for a party that you want to have. If you're really focused and if these parents are really committed to the school, you'll probably raise more money without the event. So is the want aspect the reason why it's so hard for people to let these go. Absolutely, right? I mean, you're thinking about independent school parents who often have their, their social lives intertwined with the lives of their kids' school. And that, for better or for worse, right, means that they're 
you have people who are engaged and they volunteer and they have friend groups and they bring all their friends in. And so in some cases, they this is the, the event of the year for them. This is the thing they look forward to. I think you can still do an event. Just don't make it out to be what it's not, right? Just tell the truth about the event. The event is that you want to have a social gathering. You want to have a fun night out. You want to have something to look forward to on the calendar. That's great. Then do that. Do that. But don't do that in the way that is interconnected specifically with fundraising because you don't actually need the event to be successful at fundraising. And in many ways, I think it actually hurts your fundraising. Let's also remember that if, if you are charging three, four, five, six hundred $600 for tickets to this event, you are excluding people from your major fundraising event who could otherwise give and who would otherwise give, right? You're telling them, don't be a part of our fundraising program at this school. Why would you do that? Why not have as many people pull in the wagon as you can? Why not have as many people engaged and contributing as you can? I think you could have a party that might be, maybe the ticket is to cover the cost of the event, whatever that party might be. Maybe it's a carnival and the kids can come, right? You, you get a permit and block off part of the street or something like that. There, there are lots of ways to do a community event but let's not confuse or conflate those, that with fundraising. Is it possible to be serious about DEI and still hold a gala? I think it's tough. I think it's really tough. There are going to be a lot of schools that will say, hey, we do it this way and, and it's super inclusive or we offer a, a, a ticket at cost and anybody can buy that ticket uh, or we do it in our gym and, it, and we just decorate it and the committee has a good time with it. You know, there are a lot of places that do really great events that aren't so exclusive. I, is it possible to have the, you know, Cipriani Wall Street event um, that is at the $600 ticket price? Is it possible to do that event and be serious about DEI at a private school? Probably not. Probably not. It feels like such a bold statement. And yet, as you say it, it's like, of course, how could you do both? How, how does that make sense? So I appreciate you sharing that. So tell us what you've done differently, how you have raised more in a different way. I think it's been a, a lot of personal outreach and a lot of uh, focus on the mission, the core values. Uh, as you mentioned before, right, this is a, it's a very values-driven operation. Uh, I bring my team along into uh, professional development, not just around fundraising, but around diversity, equity, and inclusion it's part of their work, right? It's, it's everybody's responsibility. We set goals, not just the financial goals, not just the participation goals, but we set DEI goals also. Right? Are you what really? Are the, in the fundraising department. In the development office, that's right. It's important for us to think about those things. How are we building the program in a way that brings more people in? So what are those goals? Can you give some examples? They, they range, right? And they change every year. Um, some are around our events. Um, uh, I'll give you an example, right? We, we made the decision over time to lower the price of all of our community events, uh, which includes a skating party and um, ice skating party in Prospect Park. It includes a, a short film festival that we create, that we curate with it through uh, one of our volunteers. We have a picnic in Brooklyn Bridge Park by the uh, carousel, which is lovely. So we do a lot of community events across the year, right? Over the, throughout the year. 
you know, read the books and speak to the author type series of events. And the goal is to bring people into conversations, to build community, to connect our families, to do the types of things that we think will, will can eventually lead to larger gifts and to more consistent gifts and to more gifts into the annual fund. But we don't have to charge for these events in a way that will exclude certain families or certain parents. We, so we sort of steadily brought the ticket prices down to really just reach costs. And in some cases we lose money, but it was a specific and purposeful decision to make sure that all of our events were accessible. And we set record attendance at events in the 2019, 2020 school year prior to the pandemic. Right. So, you know, reaching that goal was, I mean, that was a sort of a longer term inclusion goal. And we, we knew that there were sort of dollars associated with that. And we had to make sure that our annual fund numbers were consistently going up as our revenue dollar numbers were going down. We had to make it make sense for the budget, um, but it, it did. And I'm very happy that we've done that. And I think people are very happy with our calendar of events and the fact that they're accessible to all of our families. So is that a case that you're making to top donors in saying we are charging less to align with our mission? And what that means is we're asking you for a bigger gift. It means that we're asking, in many cases, we're asking more people for a gift, you know, that, which is an interesting thing. I, I think about our events as being ways that we're connecting to people and an opportunity to build a relationship. And then we get into a conversation and, you know, then we have a chance to, to do more. So we don't charge for uh, alumni reunion, for example, we, which, you know, in some ways that there are, there are certainly years in which I, I wish that we did, but we don't, we don't charge. We want as many people to come in as possible, as many people to come back to campus as possible. Does it cost us money? Is it expensive? Yes, it is. But, but we think every opportunity to engage and have a conversation with an alum that comes back is worth it. And uh, ideally, if possible, we'll get, um, We'll get a chance to then solicit those folks for a donation to help cover the cost of the event. So I can see how long term more people would give more and those divides would close. But in the short term, I guess I'm just trying to understand who's closing that gap. How is that happening? Sure. And we don't we don't publish sort of explicit giving levels, which is another part of another one of our diversity and inclusion goals. We do not publish an annual report with donors in it, um, donors' names connected to gifts. We don't do that. And in fact, when we do sort of a stewardship piece or a thank you piece, uh, it will show sort of a representation of our gifts, but not the dollar amounts, not sorry, not the the donors' names. So. I create, I mean, we have leadership level giving, right? And we have donor levels within our annual fund. Essentially, those are private conversations with people. And if I have a goal of moving someone up from one of those giving levels to the next giving level, that's going to be likely a one-on-one -on -one meeting. So that's how we, we continue to build the annual fund, the capacity within the annual fund with those specific conversations. We may send out on, on occasion, we will appeal more broadly to the community and we'll show the number of donors in each of the giving levels. 
Uh, that's one way that we sort of remind people that we do have those giving levels and it's, mm -hmm. and it's valuable and supportive. And for us, if, if you move up one, uh, we, we try to create those frameworks as much as we can in the most inclusive way. I, I, uh, I think letting go of the donor book um, with the names in it that shows who gave at what level is another way to create a more inclusive community. But at the same time, you know, you've got to think about the, the dollar impact of that as well. I mean, in a way, I've never thought of this before, but it's it's basically the other end of the spectrum of the aid piece. And so if you don't know who's getting aid and you don't know who's giving, it balances that out in an amazing That's right. way. So if, you know, one of the old, and I don't always, I, I've never really agreed or believed this, but sometimes when you hear teachers or other folks complain about independent schools, they say things like, oh, the donor kids get special treatment. I don't really think that's true. I've actually never really seen that sort of in any sort of widespread level in, in my career in independent schools. So I don't believe that. But if it were to be true, it's probably because you published a list and sent it to everyone, everyone in your community that right. says who the donors are at the top level, right? Who's a, your $50,000 annual fund donors or who gave collectively over $100,000 between you know annual and capital gifts or whatever. Uh, so if you do that, then you might create that sort of culture. We just avoid it altogether. Nobody else needs to know. And sometimes people say to me things like, well, how do you steward your donors? How do you thank your donors? And I just turn it back. Have you ever heard a donor say that they were really thanked by that book is that was that book the thing that really made the difference for them to renew their gift probably not we've we do it because we've always done it and it does it help new families you know the one thing that it that it certainly does is if you're new to an independent school and you get that book you kind of get a, a sense of the landscape and you may know oh i know those folks or uh oh these couple of work these they they work in my firm or, you know, this person's my neighbor, I kind of need to be in this range. Mm -hmm. That's maybe true. But uh, de a development conversation could provide that, could right? There, but you could get it there. Mm -hmm. And if you lose out on a couple of gifts that were 10,000 and it might've been 25,000, then that means you have some work to do. That you've got some work to do to get that donor up to 25,000. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, it's okay. I'd rather have that than have a community of people in some ways defined by the dollar amount that they've given to the school. So you had told me that you pull a list of alumni of color and queer alumni, and you actually go from that list to, to get meetings and to make sure that you have a diverse representation of meetings. I have never done this before, and I had never even thought about it until you told me. Say more. Yeah, it's really, it's kind of interesting because we all want to find our targets whenever we travel and we want to, we, we know we have to go to visit uh, a, a top donor somewhere. And then while we're there, you know, we, we may try to get some other meetings. So I, I have tried to make those other meetings be really focused on bringing people back into the fold. And if you didn't know before, you have to know now that some alumni of color and some of our queer alumni didn't have the best experiences in our schools, right? That came out in full force on Instagram accounts across the country, right? At schools across the country. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't know that before, you now have no excuse, right? You absolutely know that. I knew that before. So then I said, well, my goal was 
try to build some of those bridges, try to help folks heal in a way that would bring them back into the community. There's, there are, there's incredible value uh, for alumni being a part of the life of the school if they have the inclination, right? And they wanna volunteer or they wanna engage. That's powerful and important on its own. But we're also talking about real dollars. When you look at the broad landscape of LGBTQ alumni and alumni of color at independent schools across the country, we're talking about real money. If we can engage, begin the healing process, and in some cases, there has to be some real reconciliation, right, that happens. But when we get there, and we also provide them with a vision that shows that we're trying to take care of the kids who are in our care today better than maybe we took care of them. Once we get there, we're, we're going to see extremely generous alumni. So you say begin the healing process. I know what you mean by that, but I think some people might be thinking that is, that's not me. I don't know how to do that. I'm so overwhelmed. How can a development officer begin the healing process for an alum who was bullied? Yeah, it's rule number one of development. Listen, it's rule number one. Listen to your donors, listen to your constituents, listen to your alumni, and even when it's uncomfortable. And we're often really, really good. And in fact, you know, I think independent school development officers are some of the best at this, of taking the fire when a parent is upset about something with their kid's teacher. Yeah, we know how to do that. We're really good at that. Mm-hmm. And so let's listen to these folks who maybe have some things to say that aren't the things that we want to hear necessarily. Uh, so let's let's listen. Let's have empathy for them, and and I think it'll go so far. We've brought so many people to back into the fold, and it's made a big difference for us as we've tried to navigate these complicated times. And we were ready in many ways for the for the moment. Uh, the the conversations around racial justice that started last summer because we had brought people in already. We had already begun the healing process with some people. We'd already given people a chance to, to share their stories and their experience and vent. And didn't have to be, some schools did big events. You know, we, we didn't do that to, in the same sort of way. Uh, instead, we've just tried to, to build a community and continue talking to people and listening and trying to do better. Do you, do you literally have a metric for yourself of that type of meeting that you try to do X amount every year? I did, I did not. Okay. Uh, and, and maybe I should, maybe that's a new, maybe that's a new DEI goal for me. Um, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I, I did think about it in terms of where, you know, we travel, right? Well, most development officers have some sort of travel in their schedule. So it was easy in that regard. It made sense for us. And I try to, I've encouraged my alumni director to, to do the same. And, and even if I'm going away, I mean, I, sometimes I'm a little obsessive, right? Even if I'm going away on vacation, you know, I just say, well, all right, who's in this town and who should I meet? And they, maybe they're a great donor and I, I need to go say hi and have a cup of coffee. Uh, or maybe they're, they're someone who hasn't been connected and could just use a, an opportunity to, for me to lend an ear. So as I was preparing for our conversation, I looked at your board, I looked at your website, and I was really impressed with how diverse 
the board is and you really do mean what you're saying i suggest that people listening go and look and see who they have in their leadership what was it like were you part of building that diverse board or was that in place when you came what has gone into that creation uh, i have i've been a part of it and some of it has to do with with the thing we just talked about right if i'm going out and having conversations with alumni of color and queer alumni then i answered some of the tough questions or tried to list i've listened to folks I've connected people with people, other people who in the institution who might be able to answer their questions better. And we've been able to sort of build a pipeline of volunteer alumni that we didn't have before. So then when the conversation comes up, we're looking for trustees or who should be next in, our, in the pipeline or who should the nominating governance committee meet with, then we've got folks. We can't just say, oh, I don't know where they are. We can't, you know, I don't, we don't have a relationship with that person or that person's not a donor, right? Of course we want donors on our board. So it, it takes a little time, but this is my fourth year at St. Anne's. And so the work that I did over the first few years right, have gotten us to the place where we now have pipelines of people who maybe weren't donors before, but are now, right? So people of color who didn't feel connected or engaged before, but they do now. Uh, and then on the current parent side, it's just a, it's just an out, it's just outreach and it's meeting people. We have receptions and events, you know, new families come for cocktails or we do events. And again, part of why, if we have our events be completely accessible, I don't know who's who, right. But if we, if we create an event that feels exclusive, right, there are some people who, even if they can afford to go, won't go because it feels exclusive why not just reach out to those folks, have as many people come to your events as possible, and then start feeding those folks into your board pipeline. The numbers are good for us right now, right? But that's because we work really, really hard. Four of the last five trustees appointed to the board are people of color. So people should expect to know that this is a multi-year process. This is not a snap your fingers kind yeah. of situation. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't fix, yeah, this isn't a, and, and certainly when you think about, in some cases, the and what we see on these uh, black at Instagram accounts, there's some actual harm. There's some actual pain, right? There's some emotional pain. Some folks have some, some real things that they have, have some real traumas that they've been trying to navigate in their lives. And so it doesn't, you're not bringing, you don't necessarily bring folks back in the, into the fold with uh, one pleasant outreach or one cup of coffee. We've been rejected by people who've said, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to talk to you yet. You know, I, I, I have some friends that I've stayed close to and I remember a couple of teachers who I find members of, but the institution isn't something that I wanna be connected to or a part of right now. Okay, we hear that, we respect that and we give people time and hopefully they stay on our mailing list and they keep getting the alumni magazine and you know, we continue to, to work and build that relationship but it takes a long time and you have to be really committed to it. In the end though, I, I, if I were telling you as a fundraiser to do these things and the end result is that I raise less money every year, then ignore every word I say. But every year I've been at St. Anne's, we've set records in fundraising. Every year. This is Amazing. not, these things are not mutually exclusive. Building a broader, diverse board, doing the outreach to your alumni, creating inclusive events, leading with DEI, having that at the, the, the core of the work you do 
as a fundraiser is not in conflict with your fundraising goals. Uh, and I would say we did that. We had the same process at the, the school where I worked before St. Anne's at Allen Stevenson School. It's a lovely all boys school on the Upper East Side. It's K, uh, K to nine, a beautiful school. And, you know, I left that school after four years to come to St. Anne's and we did a great building campaign there and some other great things with the annual fund. But I left that board it, the, more, the most diverse they've ever been and the most generous they've ever been. They can go together. So you've seen it at more than one place. This is not unique to St. Anne's. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, people would say, oh, you can do that in Brooklyn or at sort of a, a uh, hippie, artsy school like St. Anne's. And no, Alan Stevenson is an extremely different profile. Uh, Upper East Side. Between mm -hmm. Park and Lex. And it's, uh, it's a very different community. But wonderful parents, a, a terrific board. And, and it's about also setting an, attempt, an intention. And now two schools in and seeing diversity on the board and, and diversity a part of the fundraising work being a priority. If, if the ultimate success for a fundraiser is dollars, then you know I've got the receipts. I would like to close with my signature question. David, what do you know for sure? People wanna help. People want to be engaged. They wanna be inspired. They want to do good in the world. So we sometimes don't really give them that opportunity. Occasionally we underestimate our donors. And we say, well, they'll only give if we do the big gala or they'll only give if it's something that's going to directly benefit their child because you know, their kid's an athlete and so it has to be a sports gift. You know, we, we definitely underestimate our donors because people want to help they want to feel good. They want to do good in the world. And we've just got to give them that opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Early on in the episode, David mentions his North Star as a fundraising professional. This comment was powerful for me, and I want to get clear on what my North Star is. I encourage you to do the same. The best education possible has to include some acknowledgement of the need for diverse perspectives, ideas, and backgrounds. I love it when David says this and he puts it so clearly. What does this episode have you thinking about differently? I would love to hear from you and for you to connect with me on LinkedIn, on my website at www.thedevelopmentdebrief.com, or on Instagram at devdebrief. I hope you have a great week.